Hello and welcome back to the Latecomers Podcast. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we are getting into the nitty gritty of this Twin Peaks situation. So we are going to dive right in now to episode 5-4. It's called episode 4. It's our fifth episode. Like all of Twin Peaks, it has two meanings, That's, 5 and 4. Well, is that two meanings or two designations? Well, it also everything seems to have a double meaning. You realize that Bob is Bob spelled backwards? I do realize that. Okay, see? It's the original palindrome. Uh, I don't know if it's the original. Probably 101. Might have been the original palindrome. OG palindrome. Um, so this episode is called The One-Armed Man, and uh, it originally aired on May 3rd, 1990. You had just had a lovely birthday, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure I did. can't remember, so it must have been lovely. It must have been. It's the best kind. I love reading. Most people... Uh, on this website, it tells me most people in the United States were listening to Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor's, O'Connor. In the UK, Vogue by Madonna was in the top five hits. Oh, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, a uh, Pedro Almodovar film, which I've never heard of. Oh, I heard of it. It was very controversial at the time. I was too small to know about controversy. Oh, well, you were too small to know about S&M, which is what the movie is about. Yeah, I might still be too small. It's and not true. That's a lie. It is. It was uh, probably, for a lot of people in the States, uh, their first introduction to not only the director, but also to Antonio Banderas. I thought Almodovar was a Mexican filmmaker. He's Spanish? Oh, interesting. And what's... It's the Spanish, not Inquisition. I was no going to say, like, that, like, if they came to take over. What was the British? Oh, invasion. The, the Spanish, Spanish invasion. invasion. Years too late. The, on television, one of the popular things was Agatha Christie's Poirot. And he's making a resurgence in our theaters with a ridiculous facial appliance. No, it was David... Um, I can't remember the actor's name. Shuset? I can't pronounce Sush- it. Yeah, I know. I couldn't um, pronounce it. It's S-U-C-H-E-T. And he played Poirot very well. He did the dandy little mustache. I have no idea what Kenneth Branagh is doing. He has... Um, something between a mutton chop... And a yeti. And a whole... Yes, and a, just a whole sheep his on face. his face. I can't imagine that the returns of the film are successful enough where they're doing a remake of Death on the Nile as well. Um, but I just... At this point, I don't... It's kind of like redoing Murders in the Room Morgue. Nobody, there's nobody on Earth who doesn't know who the killer is at this point. I don't. Okay, well, something right else you're Right now, sitting for. here, I have absolutely no idea right. who <laughs> any of Agatha Christie's killers are. Any of them. I've never read nor seen an adaptation of an ad- Agatha Christie property. Um, so, shh. Well, I won't it's say anything. It's a secret. So everything's coming back around. Yeah, the '90s really are back. Yeah, tattoo chokers and crushed velvet dresses. Are those back? They're being sold in stores as we speak. One last point though about uh, Antonio Banderas. Oh, okay. He is a Mason XB. He um, apparently did a lot of films in Spain as a comedian. Mm-hmm. 
And so when he came to the United States, he kept getting cast as an action hero, which wasn't him at all. But he's so handsome and, um, what's the word I want? Not mysterious, but kind of like that. He doesn't, he's actually kind of goofy. Yeah, he is. And he's, he's he, the Nasonex bee. Right. But he does And also of... puss in boots. <laughs> but yeah, I remember seeing the, the recording sessions for Puss in Boots, and he's literally acting out the entire film inside I of bet. a booth. He's clawing and scratching at the walls. He's jumping up and down. He's acting like a cat. Um, and so the, the producers of that film said that the sound guys had the most fun with him because he was acting out other parts in the film. He was mm-hmm. doing his own part in the film. Just a very energetic kind of character, I guess. But it's, it, yeah, I probably it, misses the um, energy expenditure right. of comedy. Oh, or being Spanish, I think. We're much well, more I mean, he's still Spanish. Here. No, but we're much more restrained here. <laughs> being in Spain and being Spanish are two different things. As wildly over-the-top or emotive with their humor or their stuff here as they are in other places. Right. Do you think that that's a function of we got that all of, out of our system 50 years ago? Of course, uh, now I guess I'm even thinking 70 well, years ago. Jerry Lewis. Right, exactly. Right, and so the thing is, he's a, he was, a, God rest his soul, was a huge celebrity in other parts of the world mm-hmm. where this kind of incredibly broad physical comedy. Well, he was huge was here, too. Yeah, but he was But huge. it's like uh, yeah. America was like, okay... We've we've gotten that out of our yeah. system, no, and we don't. We I mean, we still Jim have. Jim Carrey the, still well, had a whole career built on really but exaggerated. That's comedy. even twenty years past now. I guess so. It's just I, I think it's due for another resurgence. I like really good physical comedy. I think a lot of quote unquote black movies uh-huh. take advantage of this. Right. Like I would say, maybe the Medea. Jackie Chan. Physical acrobatics and goofiness inside of his martial arts, which kind of tempers it so people wouldn't see... It tempers it, but it doesn't bring it over into the absurd. Um, some of his stuff does, does, but yeah, nothing yeah. that's released here for wide release. Right, yeah. As a matter of fact, those scenes often get cut when they're re-released in the United States. And the quote-unquote, like the blank movies, right. epic movie, scary movie, right. you know, all those, um, what's the word? Spoof. Genre spoofs. There's a huge audience for that. What's interesting is how little it gets tapped into. Well, there's a huge audience for movies with ladies in them, right. and 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 then yet it is a surprise every time one does. There's know. still a huge audience for religious epics, which is um, strange. You, you look at. I don't know that that's. You look at how much money a film like Passion of the Christ actually grabbed this huge amount of money. So that's the last, but that's the last quote-unquote religious epic I can think of. Because didn't make very many of them. I mean, there have been some small, budgeted, religious-centered films. Yeah, but those are not, by any stretch, epic. 90% of them star Kirk Cameron. And 100% of them are poorly made. Oh, I'm not, made yeah. Nothing to say about the subject matter, which I may have significant issues with, but they're made badly. They're written badly and they are made badly. But I mean, what I'm saying is that from Box Office Returns, when it's done successfully, there is an audience for that. They're just not getting made on that scale like they right. used to. But, well, yes, but when were they ever really made on... Like, It's not like seven biblical epics are coming out this year. That was never a thing. Mm, not since maybe the 60s. The money that it made was because full churches bust their right. 
but that's what that's not an audience. And so it, there was an audience. It's for an that audience. Was, it's interesting that that's you, not paying, right? Because an institution is paying. So is that truly a paying audience? Then? I think that they came. Or back, is this obviously. a Citizens United? Well, <laughs> I think the audiences obviously came back on their own. The problem is that there are certain segments of an audience that are upper, underrepresented. When you saw um, get hold out. on, I'm going to stop us now because we are. We're, what are we even talking about? <laughs> this is literally what it says on this website. Big C, little Z, question mark, S-T-O-C-H-O-W-A. So why is there a question mark in the middle of it? Queen and protector of Poland. was That's her holiday. Oh, okay. Saints Eventius. Is that how it's pronounced? Don't you don't know that saint? saint? Uh, it's Event There's a lot of with Ius. Eventus. So Actually, it sounds like a rap performer. It does. Yeah, Eventus. Gangs Delicious. I feel like Eventus would be an awesome MC name. Yeah. Just looking for good. Oh, Black Velvet making its way up the charts. Yes. And All Around the World by Lisa Stansfield. There's a Dean Koontz book, The Bad Place. I don't know mm. that one. <laughs> Why do you hate Dean Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a bad title. The Bad Place. It's not, not a great title. Says the girl who loves the show The Good Place, so maybe she should shut up about the title. So that brings us to... So we know what was happening in the world. Mm-hmm. You were... Celebrating your birthday. Missing and, and not remembering it. But he wasn't getting drunk. I that can guarantee that. a long time ago. <laughs> do you want to read the Wikipedia synopsis? Synopsis. Episode 4 or 5, The One-Armed Man. Amazingly, both Cooper and Sheriff Truman manage to locate the one-armed man from Cooper's dream. Meanwhile, Josie follows Ben and Catherine as the couple's conspiracy to destroy the Packard sawmill develops, and Josie then receives a strange message from soon-to-be-paroled Hank Jennings. All of those things did happen, and also many other things. Many, many more. Also, I find it fascinating that this literally says both Cooper and Sheriff Truman managed to locate the one-armed man. Well, how do both of them amazingly do it? Hawk calls them and says, I found him. Right, well... That is some... Appropriation. Yeah, something. <laughs> You've appropriated the discovery. The discovery. Of the one-armed oh, man. That is... Which also puts me in... It, uh, even the title um, is very funny to me, because it's... Again, is the, when was The Fugitive? Many years earlier, and it was probably when was it? David Lynch was sitting watching television as a kid. Um, Are we talking about an original that I didn't know was a remake? Yes. Oh, you're talking about the TV series. The TV series that David Jensen is based on. All right, so that's from 1963 to 1967. I'm thinking of the Harrison Ford one, right, which, which was, was after this, which is where I was like, that's significant. I mean, it was 1993. so It was a good film, too. Uh-huh. But that I've seen. The Fugitive was, um, oddly, it was uh, the producer's attempt to make a modern-day take on Les Miserables. Okay, that makes a certain amount of sense. And by modern-day, you mean the 60s day. Well, at that time, At that right. time, right. The innocent man being pursued by the relentless detective, who in the end, in this version, The Fugitive winds up being much more sympathetic than Javert was uh, in Les Miserables. But I thought that was a really and great Spoiler idea. alert uh, for Les Mis. <laughs> does the uh, does he end up offing himself? No, he winds up 
discovering again that um, sort of said, sort of right. um, very much like the film vindicating. Okay, right. He helps vindicate because he realizes because again it's it was his job to find him, not his job to prove whether the man was innocent or not. Right. No. Understood. Yeah. So. Yeah. And is he a, like a PI or an I agent? I believe he's a, of an actual agent. Um, okay. It was such a long time ago that I saw it. But I like the fact that it was one of the rare, The Future was one of the rare television shows that actually had an ending episode that tied everything up. Often shows got canceled and you just never found out what happened to the characters. Right. But, um, but yeah, it was, for its time, it was very unique. All right. So let's get into this episode. We're going to open on Sarah Palmer and all of her hair. Was Were you okay with it? It's disturbing. It's disturbing. It's okay. disturbing. Um, she is telling a sketch artist uh, about Killer Bob, who she had seen in a vision in Laura's room. Um, Cooper's not there. Truman is there. And Donna is there, I guess, giving her moral support. And she also describes a vision of seeing uh, a gloved, what she says is a man, a gloved individual, she doesn't see the face, um, pick up a rock and then find the other half of Laura's necklace, um, which is the final scene from the movie, the the opening, the pilot, that those gloves we know uh, belong to Dr. Jacoby. And um, Donna is disturbed to have heard that maybe somebody has found the potato that they hid the necklace under and presumably right away believes that that's what truly happened or like that what Mrs. Palmer says she saw actually she saw because they end up going she ends up going with James to the spot where they hid the necklace and it's of course gone Donna says that Laura used to describe her mom as spooky. Some she said my mom is, or she said she used to say her mom was a little spooky. Mom is empathic like everyone else in town. More than empathic, empathic is feelings. This woman's got straight up visions of stuff that's actually happening. We go and uh, speaking of Jacoby, and we as the audience know that's who she's talking about when she's describing her vision. Um, we flip over to the um, police station and Cooper is interviewing Jacoby who is performing magic tricks with like um, ping pong balls it, it looks like. It seemed to be ping pong balls or golf balls. I or golf balls. Them. Yeah, they seem lighter then but they're, you know, he's magic so who knows. And wearing mm, homemade 3D glasses maybe? They had mm-hmm. a red lens and a blue lens for no discernible reason. He says he won't breach confidentiality to discuss uh, Laura with uh, Cooper, which seems real dumb because Laura's deceased. What are the rules about? I don't recall. And who knows what they were in 1989 in Washington State. Right. Um, what they are today are probably very different. HIPAA has changed. Um, I'm sure you can get, you could probably get a court order, but maybe it's just, you know, Sam's court order, just handing stuff over. Um, he does, however, say that he struggled to understand Laura's problems and says that he followed somebody. Uh, Laura had secrets, and around these secrets she built a fortress that in my six months seeing her I wasn't able to penetrate and which, and for which I consider myself an abject failure. But the night after Laura's murder, 
he says he followed a man that Laura had spoken to him about, a man who drives a red Corvette. Right away, I didn't know who that was. It seems that Cooper does. And we find out mm, a couple of scenes later mm -hmm. that this is Leo's car. So then Cooper gets a phone call from his supervisor, Gordon, who is voiced Gordon. voiced by David Lynch. It was a very distinctive voice, but I didn't pick up on it the first time. I picked up on the second time. And we should say this episode was directed by Tim Hunter and written by Robert Engels. Gordon lets Cooper know that according to the analysis that uh, Albert's finished, the bite marks on Laura's shoulders were bird bites. He also talks about how Albert wants to basically get Truman's badge taken from him after the altercation that they had had. Cooper 100% uh, defends Truman, says that, you know, he showed like the patience of a saint for not hitting him a whole day before uh, he actually did. Um, and then Gordon says something like, now, now don't get upset and hang up on me. And before he can even finish the word me, Cooper has hung up on him, which apparently is the thing that he does uh, regularly. Um, and then Cooper just puts all his folksy just right up on Front Street and says, he assures Harry, the last thing you need to worry about is some city slicker I brought into your town relieving himself upstream. So, Which is a beautiful expression. It really yeah. is. Especially given the sort of vitriol uh, right. with which uh, Albert was speaking, he sort of uh, proves himself a little more erudite than, uh, than, than poor Miguel. And then Andy brings in the sketch uh, that Sarah Palmer had described to the sketch artist, and Cooper confirms that it is the man that he saw in his dream. Slightly different. Slightly different. His eyes were closer together, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah, I think he also makes an interesting statement that he says that he didn't want to be present at the interrogation because he's a strong sender. Right. So he's aware that he has some kind of um, abilities, which he goes oh. along with. I like that you say he's aware that he has abilities and not he believes he has abilities. No, no, because he seems to objectively, the same way that, you know, Mom saw Bob, he saw Bob as well. Right. So and I wonder if he believes Sarah Palmer to be a strong receiver. Right. Um, yes, well, that would be the implication when he says, uh, or it would be implied that way if uh, he said he was a strong sender, that she would receive the messages he was sending about his convictions about who the uh, killer was, or who Bob was, or how Bob looked, or whatever. Yeah. So then they get a call, and Hawk tells them, mm -hmm. hey, I found your one-armed man. And this, there's a little bit of confusion at first for me, because we see Josie sitting outside of the motel, mm -hmm. taking pictures or just having a binoculars? One or the other. She's definitely the, uh, surveilling. Mm -hmm. um, and we end up seeing that Catherine and uh, Ben Horney <laughs> uh, are carrying on their affair. Um, and then in that, and then we see the officers pull up, Josie pull away, and the officers go to a different room and start banging on the door right. because this is where the one-armed man is also 
ha- uh, happens to be. Now, did you um, did you find out anything about the Elvis or what that reference was to? I did. Okay. I yes, of and course. I will get to that. Um, in fact, yeah, this flashes uh, like sort of goes back and forth between the police outside and the um, Catherine and Ben. The in simple their, couple. Oh, yes, the simple couple in their in their motel room, and they're talking back and forth about how Catherine hid the the bad book in another place and nobody knows that hiding spot, not even our dumb husband. And uh, and then Ben says he's going to go clean, wash little Elvis, is what he says. I'm going to go, oh, go scrub little Elvis. Now, apparently, in at the same time, he's got a, like a little action oh, figure of Elvis, yeah. right, um, and takes him to the bathroom with him. Now, there was apparently... Um, Elvis used to refer to his business as Little Elvis. It is a reference to his junk, and everybody knew it at the time. And so the way that they got past the censors was having him hold this figurine, like that's what he was talking about. But that is not what he was talking about. Um, And I'm not sure. Yeah, it's weird. But, yeah, he ends up, it just ends up making it a little, like, more odd. Um, Like he walks around or carries on his personal affairs with the help of a little tiny Elvis that cheers him on. That's right, yes. Much like Log Lady has her log. He imagines himself a hunk of hunk of burning love. Oh, I bet he does. Uh, okay. Okay, so as, okay, then we go back and out, from outside the motel, um, Cooper and Truman and Andy are all gathered around this door, banging on it, uh, asking. Uh, the the one-armed man's name is Philip Gerard. So they knew it's Gerard, and they're uh, yelling, Mr. Gerard, open the door to the police. And then Andy fumbles his gun, drops it, and it goes off. What? <laughs> Um, well, we've seen a scene earlier in the episode where he and his girlfriend, the secretary, mm. is, she can, he right, is asking her why he couldn't spend the night, and she refuses to speak to him. That's and, right, she's super mad. Right, so I wonder And passive-aggressive, and we don't know why. The uh, premature shooting is part of the relationship. Oh, problems. no, that's not right. Don't impugn his manhood just because uh, he's a crier. Because he dropped his gun. Um, How it managed not to kill anybody is a surprise. Yeah, no one, no one is hurt that we know. None of the characters in the show are hurt. Um, Coop and Truman end up busting in the door. The one-armed man is in a towel, surprised. Um, in the adjacent room, uh, Ben goes to wash his little Elvis, and Catherine... Uh, finds a poker chip, a $1,000 poker chip from One-Eyed Jacks in, like, Ben's pocket. It it had fallen out of his pocket when he gathered his clothes to go. Nobody just holds on to a $1,000 chip. What are you doing? Get that money. Actually, I I want to make a correction about something that we spoke about earlier. Um, I looked into it, and that actually was a one-armed actor. Oh, Alice Trevall. Well, 
we haven't talked about it on here. Now, while we were watching the scene with this one-armed man mm -hmm. uh, on screen, you were commending the um, placement of the cameras right. and the effects work that right. was being done to what you were say, now saying. Well, apparently he is a one-armed doctor. He lost his arm in a car accident when he was a teenager. And... Um, yeah, when the the odd part about it, and I'm beginning to think this was actually really cleverly done, is that the beginning scenes of, of with him are framed in such a way as to make you kind of try to look around people's shoulders to see his missing arm. Right. Although the very first shot, because I was like, is it really uh, effects? Because if so, I'm impressed. Because the very first shot of him that we see. Right when he comes away from the door that he was sort of behind, uh -huh. you can see the upper stump. Right. It's a dead-on forward shot, right. and there's nowhere that he could be hiding an arm, you know, in, behind right. himself, in, because he's Which also shirtless. If prosthetically, I mean, if you made a prosthesis that covered... It depended on how much of an amputee. But that's was. the thing. His amputation mm. is just this little the shoulder, almost like a like a small wing at the top of his shoulder, um, and nothing down. Yeah, down yeah. further. I was so. the impression that it was a really well done special effect, considering this was pre CGI, because we saw not entirely convincing versions of this in Forrest Gump, um, where was uh, Gary Sinise had yeah. put on sort of these green stockings, and he was. Uh, mm -hmm. Those were matted out. But this was earlier than that and didn't have the technology. And there were things like that you'd seen in films before, but generally it was the person's arm is tucked behind them, tucked right. in front of them. And, and so it, you were presuming that that was the right. case. Right, in fact, because they it were, was shot that way. It was, yeah. It was shot very much like we're covering it up, up until the last reveal where he's standing full to the camera with a missing arm. But that's, thought, well, that's the first real, reveal, though. That's also the last thing that you oh, see. Oh, that, that is. It, it, is it does bookend it, I believe, um, that's right. No, because he's in, he just... He's in the like, beginning, he's saying you're getting your point of view from between. Uh, right. There's a bunch of. Right. It blocks off his shoulders. And it the reminds characters. me of um, Roman Polanski's thing in, uh, in um, Rosemary's Baby, where he shoots a lot through half, half open doors so that the viewers in the audience, he got a big kick out of sitting in an audience and watching people in a like, theater craning their necks to yeah. look around the doors. Because the film is all about spying on your neighbors. It's like when I'm playing video games and I'm like jumping, right. like my, lifting the controller up, like that's going to help anybody and with anything. Right. But I mean, Polanski did that for Rosemary's Baby and had a lot of fun with it. I, it was something similar watching them kind of uh, play with your expectations right. about what you were looking at as opposed to as to what was actually happening. Right. So it was pretty neat. So this one-armed man is Philip Gerard. Um, shown the sketch of Bob, uh, he says he's never seen this man before in his life. Uh, when Cooper asks if he has a friend named Bob, he says that Bob Lidecker is his best friend in the world, um, and he's a vet locally, and that's what he's doing here. He's visiting his friend Bob, who is a local vet, a vet uh, veterinarian. Right. That, yeah, you should make that clear. <laughs> so let me make that clear. He was um, visiting the hospital the past few days to visit his friend who was assaulted in a local bar fight, which I don't know if we should presume was the brawl that Bobby and Ed fought in an earlier episode. 
I can't think that there are that many bar fights. You never know. In this town. Well, maybe there's nothing else to do but drink and punch. Um, Commune with the Wendigo. So then uh, they ask how he lost his arm, and he says it was in a car crash, and that he is now a traveling shoe salesman. Um, And then Cooper presses him repeatedly on whether or not his missing arm had a tattoo, which would line up with his dream. Um, And then Gerard breaks down in the most theatrical sobbing and says that the tattoo that he had said, Mom. Um, I don't know what I'm supposed to believe from that outburst. There was nothing but theatrical sobbing um, on this show. Everyone... their performances are really exaggerated. Yeah. He, this felt Bobby level. Yes. Of, yes. <laughs> of over the top, where I was just like, am I supposed to believe that he's genuinely upset? Right. Or are these crocodile tears? Or is this man crazy? I don't know which of these to adhere to. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Um, and then this is, like, this episode, I feel like, went by... You moved in a really nice clip. Very quickly, a lot happened. There's a lot of talking. More talking than uh, static shots and ambiance. So we're going to go over to uh, the high school where Audrey walks into a girl's bathroom uh, smoking a cigarette. Donna's in there already. Did you notice anything unusual about the girl's bathroom? The weird stripes on all of them? It appeared to be electric cardiogram painted. Yes. And it's like hot pink on pale pink. It's very And like an EEG, yeah. I'll I'll trust your judgment on what colors they were. Well, yeah, that's... I'm looking at a still of um, Audrey really just vamping it up in the scene. Uh, Not that she doesn't vamp it up in literally every scene she's in. Kind of her thing. She's good at it. Audrey says that she is going to solve this murder to prove to Cooper that she is the woman of his dreams, which is just such a teenage... She played that very well, because I got that feeling and almost a little sympathy for her, because she obviously... Um, she wants out of this podunk town, right, man. But she also has daddy issues, as we look. Oh, out. clearly, yes. And that will come back this, this episode, in fact. Um, now, Cooper's not... You know, old. Significantly older than her now. But he is certainly um, an authority figure. Right. So that would feed into the quote-unquote daddy issues. So she and Donna um, agree to sort of work together they with what lives. each of them knows. Right. Which Donna says that they have to promise not to tell anybody what they figure out when they figure it, whatever it is out. Right. Which seems like... A fool's bargain, because Audrey has literally just told you that the only reason she wants to solve this crime is to get Cooper to fall in love with her. She's going to need to tell Cooper that the time is right to be fallen in love with this information that they're going to gather. So I, think that, uh, I also found it uh, uh, funny that she really believes that this will lead to international intrigue, being that he's an FBI agent. Well, CIA, FBI. CIA So Audrey shares the information that um, Dr. Jacoby had been seeing Laura, which she found out by lurking in the walls of her own house. Right, exactly. 
and that she suspects that Laura was working at as a prostitute at One Eye Jacks. On top um, of all the other things that Laura was doing. Yes. Well, yes. And that she got there through the perfume counter that we know she was working at um, because both Ronette and Laura worked at the perfume counter. And so that's where she was going to start doing her digging perfume counter. Dun, dun, dun. We'll get to that in a minute. Well, she, yeah, it's very much Nancy Drew, girl detective. Oh, yeah, for sure. You're going to get into something. Well, and also, well, I'll... We'll get into it when we get back to that scene. Um, so the next person that we uh, zoom in on is Norma. She is at Hank's parole hearing, looking super excited about all of these she's experiences. Amazing. I'm just thrilled to be there. Thrilled. The prospect of her husband coming home. So he's been in jail for a year and a half for killing a vagrant uh on a vehicular manslaughter charge. A vagrant that nobody knows who it is. I guess to this day, that's no name McGee. We don't know who this person is. He looks like a vagrant. Maybe, but he had to be a little more solid than dead to... Does Bob look like Rick Baker to you? Uh, No, in no way, except he has long hair. Kind of evil twin. And worse hair. Yes, well... No. I think... Mm -mm. She tells the parole board with so much enthusiasm and joy on her face that she is going to give Hank a job at the Double R Diner um, and that they'll, of course, they'll live together as husband and wife. They're still married, aren't they? Even though he had, she has said that she is going to leave, uh, divorce him to end up with Ed. Who is also married, so... To a strange and dangerous creature. Pirate. Yes. Cooper and Truman then get to go to the animal clinic. Um, and where you'd expect a dog or a cat, in the lobby there is an iguana and a llama. A llama. 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 Who gets real up in Coop's face. Now, I was wondering about that <laughs> moment. I, I don't, don't think that that was staged. I think the llama actually stared him down for a second. I would love that if that was true. Um, because if just, it is true, McLaughlin ran with it and I did so. I mean, so good. I don't know that you could have staged a moment where the animal for a split second just turns and looks you dead in the eye. Dead in the eye as it's walking by. Like... Are we going to do this? <laughs> no, we're not going to do this. The fact that he did not drama. break his rhythm or his, he just stayed in character the whole time. In character. Staring at it right in the face. No questioning, no nothing. Just like, oh no, if you want to do this, we could go. Right. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> and that, that, whether it was, I mean, if it was deliberate, it was a great touch because it added a lot to his character. Like he's staring down a llama. It did, yeah. It's, it's as tall as he is. It is. It looks at him. Just dead in the eye. Full in the face. As tall as he is. And if it wasn't, then hats off to Colin Clarkland, who is an amazing actor and deserves a lot more recognition because that would have completely broken me up. If suddenly a llama stops in mid scene and just turns. Yes, and it's expected at him. to just walk past yeah. you and instead just three yeah. inches from your face. Um. And then Cooper has this hunch that the bird that bit Laura's shoulder is a client of this office. And then they confiscate all of the files in the entire office and send it back to the station. Uh, And the next couple we see are Bobby and Shelly just making out. She is on his lap, straddling him. I was like, is this on HBO? What's happening right now? It could be an episode of Game of Thrones. It was a lot. 
Well, for then, certainly, it was kind of surprising. I remember that um, the show was considered uh, very kind of uh, suggestive or... Racy. Racy. <laughs> and then they have the most, I'm going to go ahead and say, fuck boy conversation that I've ever heard in my life, wherein Bobby... I'm gasping. ...who is being straddled by a married woman who is not his girlfriend complains about how his dead girlfriend mm -hmm. was seeing some other dude behind his back. And Shelly is like, poor baby. And I'm just like, what is happening There's here? There's a lot of bad relationships in this town. Well, that's because I don't think any of these people understand what a relationship is. Certainly not monogamy. Even though they all purport to understand and adhere to it. Right. Nope. Not even a little bit. It reminds me of the opening shot um, of, um, oh, good Lord, it just escaped me right now, Blue Velvet. The uh, beautiful lawn, seen... it's being watered, and then the camera dives beneath the lawn and finds all these horrible insects groveling around. And it, Yeah, that sort of notion of the, this kind of... Uh, manicured perfection underneath it's all sort of corrupt right but like i don't even like like if you're gonna cheat or if you're gonna be polygamous or polyamorous that's fine but how about we don't complain about our non-monogamous partners being non-monogamous with the people with whom we are being non-monogamous like there's nothing in this story though nothing that ever suggests these people Everyone's no, that's suffering true. for their <laughs> yeah. relationship. Although I mean, there I, are people who are suffering that I would posit probably don't necessarily deserve to be suffering right. the way that they are, i.e. Josie. But yes, yeah, so we've got Bobby being a dumb boy and Shelly being a dumb girl. How old is she supposed to be? Because I'm getting the impression that she makes equally stupid decisions. I would she can't guess that she is, if she's of legal drinking age, it would be surprise me i think that she is one two maybe three years out of college but probably not more or out of high school rather um probably because not more than that seem like a big no she her. didn't well yeah no but she certainly right. didn't go to college because she married leo right. and now is his free maid whom he gets to punch Bobby's like, is Leo going to come back? Because also he knows that this woman is stepping out on his, right. uh, or on her husband. And she says, no, he is out with Jacques, who Bobby, of course, knows is a fellow drug dealer. Then Shelly shows Bobby the bloody shirts. Bobby's like, yo, I'm going to take this, okay? <laughs> and she's like, cool. Can we have sex while I rub this gun on my boobs? And I think that his response is, yes, uh, we can do that. And so then they do, but we don't see it. I saw the scene and lifted my head myself. So. <laughs> and She's ignoring me from her place on, on, on the television set. So, so. As she, yes, as she is asking to be taught how to use a gun well, while I, suggestively rubbing it over her body. Well, that's, I, I think that's the reason why. He was being really helpful to her because apparently she thought... You use a gun by pointing it downward at your belly while rubbing it on your cleavage, which is no, not the way to use a gun. No, I think it was up. I thought it was up, but I, it wasn't. Well, no, because that it would have seemed very unsafe. Right. 
And I don't find guns particularly sexy, but this is a pretty gun. It's a very shiny silver with a uh, mother of pearl handle. Um, and it is a little meant, to, I'm sure, to be a lady's gun, right. whatever that means. Um, it's a gun for ladies. And then, speaking of guns, we are back at the police station where Andy's like, I don't know what happened, boss. I've never had an accident like that before. That's exactly what he told us <laughs> the secretary the night before, I'm sure. And uh, then they end up going downstairs to the shooting range, which is basically like a big closet. As far <laughs> it's as a basement. It's a basement, <laughs> and there's yeah. And um, Hawk, good shots. Andy, practice is what is needed. He doesn't even say it's bad. He's just like I don't even think. I'm pretty sure that on the body target he hit a lot of white and no black well he he managed to and it was kind of amazing because he managed to miss the target all the time entirely yeah but cooper's on the other hand i look surprised every time the gun went off i was like well stop squeezing the trigger that's (laughs) how you get that to stop and then cooper and truman fire off their six shots and hawk's like oh you only hit it four times it's all headshots on, on Cooper's target. And he said, no, I shot it twice. I said, four times in the eyes and twice through the nostrils. He's something like that. He makes a face. Yeah. It, well, it's not a face, really. It's just a it square. It the, the gag on uh, Lethal Weapon, the first film, where Mel Gibson's character shoots a happy face onto Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, yes, there's a whole kind of um, hierarchy kind of... Um, performance uh, suggestion of male performance or male potency to that scene it was pretty funny yeah well i mean and because right before he does the he shoots um truman asks cooper if he's ever been married which he replies no but that he's learned about the pain of a broken heart and then pow 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 look at look at all my good guns and then hawk uh shares a poem that he wrote about his girlfriend and that (laughs) cooper goes Oh, local girl? And he goes, her name's Diane Shapiro, PhD, from Brandeis. Which <laughs> like, is a great, incongruous yeah, moment. Exactly. It's very funny. Shelly and Norma at the diner share a little moment about how they each have one too many men, and they don't know what to do about it. And I'm like, oh, please, ladies, let me fucking cry me a gun. <laughs> like, how about everybody gets one before y'all greedy bitches take two? Although yeah. I don't want a Leo or a Bobby. Shelly, right. you got two too many men. Right. And I think Norma is right, one too many men. Ed seems like a good dude, minus the fact that he is married, married to, to a woman who loves so him, but is probably crazy. We're going to find out. We've got to find out more about Because that. it really is very interesting how he wound up in that position with this woman who is very physically dangerous. And then uh, James walks into the diner, meets Maddie, mm-hmm. Madeline. Uh, that's Laura's cousin, also the same actress as Laura, with a big brown wig and glasses. Although I don't... Is she wearing the glasses in the scene? She might not have been, which makes her look, you know, obviously even more like her you cousin. You have one life to live. Why not live it as a blonde? Well, because that was she's old, in hiding. I think it was an old Clairol ad. Sounds like a Clairol Yeah, ad, it was. But... Once Upon a Time, which is really terrible. It was a terrible ad. That is terrible. And then James uh, gives Donna a call. And Donna's like, we're doing the potluck. We could use your help. And... James is like, I don't know if I'm in the mood. I might be bummed out. And she's like, 
come on, I'm adorable. And he's like, I'll be there after I eat. And I was like, they're having a potluck. You have to pay to eat here. You should just go get some food out of some sort of chafing dish. What are you doing? Uh, you're a child. You don't have a job. Where are you getting all this money? Probably drugs. Selling drugs. And then Norma gets the phone call, and Hank has been paroled. Dun, dun, dun. Which, you know. And then Audrey, then we go over and we see Audrey's dad, Ben Horny, in a velvet tracksuit on a stationary bike in front of a fireplace on the phone. Now, this is the worst decorated room I've ever seen. None of the, none of the have, quote, family uh, rooms in the hotel, where I assume the Horn family lives, none of them is good. It should be haunted by the spirits of the dead animals hanging everywhere. Yeah, the, there are dead animals everywhere. There's the but there is the a bank, too, so... Uh, and then there's the, just the, the... There's a marlin over the mantelpiece, right? So Probably. I don't recall, but that is a pretty there's a marlin, standard... There's a chandelier that's made of bullhorns or buffalo horn, maybe? I don't, I don't think it's no, buffalo. No, I don't think they're that big. I think it's like elk or deer, yeah. yeah. I kind of like... A, a horn chandelier is that bad i yes, shouldn't say that bad. out loud i'm not it's saying go kill some bad. animals and make me a chandelier but well, those animals i don't hate them in a rustic setting hamburger, i think that's i'd eat an elk burger thank elk you she so audrey comes in and is like my my best friend died she doesn't say best friend but my friend died and now i understand that life is short and I want to let me be your daughter again, Daddy. I'll start at the bottom, and then <laughs> of the business, so that she she can come in and take over. Because she says someone's got to do it, and it's not going to be Johnny. Which, yeah. you know, yeah, that. But yeah, pretty well on it though. It's beautiful. But she says I'll I'll do anything to prove it. I'll start at the bottom, and he says he literally says we've got people coming in. Why don't you go ahead and uh? make those beds and she goes you still don't believe me and i'm like i thought he was like legitimately mm -hmm. taking up you up on your offer you said start at the bottom i'm pretty sure what he just wanted you to do was starting at the bottom but she says you know i thought that i should start in in the stores maybe at the cosmetic counter part-time while i'm still in school because she wants to see about laura's history and what happened what I don't think she doesn't understand is, hey, we're hoeing out our perfume counter girls, but I bet the boss's daughter is immune from that. <laughs> I bet we don't do it with her. I'm hoping that that's the context of that conversation because I felt like given the way that people mistreat and abuse their family members on this show, um, it could very well be that her dad is aware of what happens to the girls, the perfume cut. Oh, I think her dad is aware. she could become some sort of asset to him that way. But I he goes to One-Eyed Jack on the reg. Right. I don't think he wants to see his daughter there. I, I am hoping, double right. fingers crossed, that that would really put a dent in whatever boner he happened to be dealing with. Right. Because if it didn't, we've got a whole separate story, and I don't think that's the story David Lynch is telling, although this relationship is so messed up. Right. Like, her clearly, like, legitimately trying to use, quote-unquote, fem feminine wiles on her dad is weird and gross. Yeah. She's doing the daddy, I want to yeah. be your daughter thing, but she's also really sexing it up. I think that it might be 
um, that that's how she gets anything. That's true. It might that's be just she what she's learned right. works for her. And then that Ben goes off to a, quote, business meeting. So maybe probably to see Catherine at the motel or to go to One-Eyed Jack's. I don't know. Who knows? Oh, I actually do know because we find out where it goes. I'm stupid. Um, then we are back at the police station. Um, they're pulling an all-nighter because the uh, clinic records that they've got, the veterinary clinic's records, are listed alphabetic by the name of the animal, the name of the pet. Not, the, like, not C for cat, B right. for bird, but like... Z for Zach's. Then they get a call from Cooper's boss again. He says that one of the fragments that they found in Laura's stomach is a poker chip, a piece of a poker chip. And the bird bites came from a minor bird. Um, at that very moment, Andy is like, there's a minor bird that's owned by Jacques Renault. And the minor bird's name is Waldo. So um, that's Cooper's like, all right, that's it. We're going in. We're raiding this dude's house. They break it, break in, but he has gone. And we knew that because he skipped the border the last episode. He right. called Leo to take him across the border. Bobby, however, had just broken into Jacques' house prior to the police getting there and planted Leo's bloody shirt, trying to get rid of Leo so he can have Shelly all to himself. I guess that's what he wants now that his girlfriend is dead. I don't know because it seems like given his propensity for not, for um, polyamory, I don't think that. I mean, why is he going through this trouble? I don't know. Unless it's but he wants Leo to get off of his back because he owes Leo ten thousand dollars for yeah. one. So then we um, go back to Ben Horn's business meeting, which is him meeting supposedly in a in a in a very down low fashion meeting with Leo, who's driven his red Corvette there. So, you know, he's very secret, he's very sneaky. Uh, Horn gives him a bunch of money to pay, uh, to pay him to burn down the Packard Mill in three days and make it look like arson and insurance fraud. Um, he wants the insurance company to read arson in six-foot-high letters, block letters is what he says. Presumably, then, that uh, also means that Benjamin Horn knows about the drug ring because he knows that Leo is for sale, needing money, because they're talking about how he's out a bunch of money. And so it's likely that he might be the money behind the bringing the drugs across the border. Like, he might be, like, the kingpin. Right. He's bankrolling the... He's bankrolling the drug trade, which I would assume after a little while the drug trade bankrolls itself, but not if you keep losing $10,000 at a time. Backwards narcotraficante. And then Leo says that he has taken care of the Renault brothers. Jacques is going to stay in Canada. And uh, Leo says he kills he killed Bernie. We don't know that that's true or well, we not. We see Bernard. something wrapped in a bundle. Right. So we get the assumption that he did. That it's his. Because he, he comes across as faintly ridiculous a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. It's the ponytail. It's the ponytail and the posturing, but then every once in a while... He, he looks like a wrestler. Yeah. he does not, It's hard to take him seriously, but then it turns out he does things like uh, kill people and beat up his wife, and, yeah. and you have to sort of start taking him seriously. And it's not just that it's David Lynch's kind of odd world where people wear letterman jackets and yeah. slick back their hair. It's not just a part of that. Even inside of the world, he's ridiculous. Yeah. 
with his his Corvette and his uh, you know his tough guy kind of really put up tough guy demeanor, like the t- kind of tough guy you'd expect to see in an action movie or something. Right. So even like he then, wants to be Steven Scott when he grows right. up. Right. But even in that context of that world, he's ridiculous, except for the fact that he actually does things. Yeah. No, he does um, seem to be getting things done. Right. He follows through for sure. Yeah, and so nobody expects that of him. So it's not just us as an audience who are like, oh, that's a really ridiculously overplayed part. No, everyone thinks he's ridiculously overplayed, but he's actually doing it too. So it's an interesting turn to that character that he is dangerous. And then we go, and um, Donna... Oh, this is where Donna and James go back to the woods to mm-hmm. see if about their potato, and their potato is gone, and their necklace is Which gone. Which is the next mystery, the case of the missing potato. And they said, um, they uh, James wants to go to the police, because James seems to always want to go to the police. He's really, a, he's, he's big into throwing up his arms and going, well, what are you going to do? I guess jail. <laughs> then Donna's like, but the police didn't love Laura, only you and I love Laura. And I don't know how that's relevant to the situation, but uh, she talks James out of going to the police. Um, that's true. Why exactly would she say that? Yeah. Well, it why would that make any difference? Yeah. It, yes. Your your love or, or lack thereof for the victim doesn't really negate your legal requirement to go <laughs> with evidence that you might have, but she's also in this pact with Audrey for some reason so and then um we end at the packard home um pete gets home at the end of the day at the mill and josie is um, making him a sand has made him a sandwich they're not married i'm gonna repeat they are not married but then pete says hey josie what do you think about fish and she's like eating them and he's like nah catching them i'm like i know the answer to this She's never even seen a fishing boat before. She has no interest in fishing with you, Pete. They're having a mixed doubles in the fishing competition that's coming up, which I just think is hilarious. And uh, he knows enough about fishing for the both of them, but it'd sure be swell if Josie would want to be on his team. <laughs> he is playing it so sweet and innocent. It's very, he's but at very the time, sweet. Josie is wearing a negligee. She looks drop dead gorgeous. Right, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, he's playing it like a very eager little boy, but this is in a town full of very beautiful women, a stunning woman. Right, well, it's probably, it, it's clear to me that, that Pete, regardless of the fact that this is his wife's brother's ex, you know, right. widow, Pete loves this woman. Right. And, and, and he's not going to be inappropriate about it. Well, that's what makes it so sweet, you know. She feels completely comfortable walking around him the way that she is. Right. Well, I think that she also might know that he's sort of wrapped around her finger and right. all she has to do is wear this nightgown. Is make a sandwich. Right, and make him a turkey sandwich and put some mayo on it. Ooh, you hated that scene. Uh, well, I had to look away. But she says that, you know, if you want to do that, I'll do that. That's, that's fine. And then she, uh, he goes off to his, bring his sandwich to his room with him, his room by himself that he does not share with his wife. And um, she, she seems to be very happy about this, too, that he's yeah. not sharing this room with his wife. Oh, yeah. Well, no, for sure, because she's horrible and he knows it. And she's horrible to him. And she's too busy having an affair with um, someone else. 
And I wonder how much of that he knows. We're not sure. Yet. Oh, I believe that he knows that she's... Well, I believe that he probably presumes that and doesn't really care right. one way or the other. Josie opens the mail and there is a like a, a pencil drawing of a domino, a 3-3 domino, oh, exactly. um, which is something that Hank had on his person at the parole hearing. Right. And then we I don't see know how he just had a domino. I don't know why, how you... It looked like he a lot of or something. It yeah, but why would he, he's in jail? Yeah, well, he was also dressed for the parole hearing. He was. So, so he has that. That was, that was infuriating. I don't understand the top button up to the neck thing. That it makes you look more... Like a bachuco. And so she opens this letter and seems uh, upset by it. Mm-hmm. And then the phone rings and she answers and it's Hank. And he's like, catch you later or whatever. He also seems to have an inordinate fondness. For and then he puts that domino in his, his mouth, mouth and then right, takes it out like right. it's yes. like a popsicle or something. It it's real upsetting. Very weird. So there's there's got to be a weird connection between the two of them. So maybe lovely, sweet, innocent Josie is not as lovely, sweet, and innocent. Well, she certainly is lovely, but she might be not be as sweet as innocent. Well, as, she might be blackmailed. I think she's expected to be blackmailed, or perhaps there was some kind of relationship in the past that um, the domino sucker is... Uh, well, is that what we're going to call Hank? I don't know, but, no. but it was just... It was gross. Yeah, it was gross. I've got some trivia. Trivia uh, on this episode. Okay. Uh, Tim Hunter directed this episode. Uh-huh. And he had previously directed River's Edge. Oh, really? Yes. Another thing about a dead team. Also with Dennis Hopper. Right. And Keanu, baby Keanu, and baby Crispin. Yes. Uh, that movie's real good. It is a good movie. And then here's the thing about Elvis. When he goes to take a shower after his tryst, that's a hard word for me mm-hmm. to say, with Catherine, he says... I'm going to give little Elvis a bath. Little Elvis is how Elvis Presley referred to his penis. As a way of getting that line past network censors, they had actor Richard Boehmer hold a small Elvis doll in his hand as he said the line. It worked. Censors avoided. Weird penis reference and doll fully intact. There's um, one of the funnier gags like that that I've seen pulled was when Stephen King wrote an episode of the X-Files about a creepy doll and he calls it a creepy doll right (laughs) it was a creepy doll in an episode (laughs) it took place in Maine and Scully's on her own and she's dealing with this doll and the doll is referred to as the chinga I kid you not and I was watching this episode it's not like basically mean the fuck the fuck (laughs) that's what the word chinga means in Spanish and so um, I'm watching the episode with my mom at the time. We were like avid fans. We were watching it. And it was just like, what? Wait, what? Where? Oh, no, you're not supposed to understand this. But, um, but also, uh, what's his name? George Lopez on his show would regularly have people say terrible things. Oh, yeah. They said some very offensive things in, in Spanish, a language that isn't English. That somehow got right past the censors. You're like, did he just say, you know... <laughs> Because, you know, the translation would be something like, fuck me running or fuck me sideways. I'm like, whoa, whoa. I didn't. And, yeah, it was really shocking that he got away with that. But, again, the censors were not 
didn't speak Spanish, I guess, which you would think that... They right, would. or they didn't think that the people who write letters in the Midwest would right. speak Spanish and don't right. really care that much, really. And then somehow the audience was uh, aware of the fact that he was getting past them. But yeah, Stephen King had a great big, you know, middle finger for her. Yeah, that's the right. censors. Um, okay, so, who's the murderer? Who did it, um, who did it have done it? Uh, I don't know. The only one that I'm sure didn't do it is the uh, domino sucker. Hank. At this point, it could be anybody. Um, I'm still going with a Wendigo. I really uh, think. You're still on Wendigo? I, I, I'm still on Wendigo. Well, there seems to be a whole... This went from being a straight-up kind of Hardy Boys mystery. Right. And very early on started going into the, the territory of like psychic detectives like William Hope Hodgson used to write about. Oh, he comes up again. Psychic detectives and houses on clips. There was a Seabury Quinn, and there was a couple of other authors who did detectives who discovered um, clues through metaphysical means. That was a whole genre. Jean. Excuse me. Jean. That's Christopher Lee taught me how to pronounce that word. Jean. Um, In the uh, 30s and 40s, there was a lot of that. And it's beginning to feel that way. There's these strange forces in the woods. There are, there are uh, these mysterious characters who show up in people's dreams. So yeah. it, it's beginning to feel very much like you're watching some sort of ghost story rather than a straight-out mystery. But the two genres genre, are very closely aligned, really. Yeah. I'm wondering... I want to meet Bob Lidecker. Okay. Well, I want to see... He was injured in a barroom fight, right. but we haven't talked to him. We've just raided his store or his uh, clinic, uh-huh. where he wasn't. But we didn't talk to any coworkers that seemed to know anything other than there was a very old lady who I think was the office manager, secretary, right. or something. But the llama and the iguana were being seen. So where are the coworkers? But I want to I want to meet Bob Lidecker because we've met, not Mike, Philip Gerard, right. who he said he named Mike, and now we have Bob, and I want to just get Bob off of my subject suspect list, Bob Lidecker, which who we haven't seen. Um, that's that's interesting. You think that he might be? Um... I don't think he might be. I don't well. I don't know. He's a he's a known acquaintance of this bird, who was definitely at the <laughs> at the scene of the crime. Scene of the crime. So who knows? But I'd like to see him. I'd like to meet him. I'd like to know what he looks like, and I'd like to know what, uh, like, why is he still laid up in the hospital after a barroom fight? Mm-hmm. No, no, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, I want to see, I'm hoping that he comes in. And yeah, I still think Leo had something to do with it. Of course I did. He's got a bloody, 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 bloody shirt. Super bloody shirt. It could be from somebody else entirely. Yeah, it could be. Wendigo. He got his period. (laughs) He's a real dick. All right. But he certainly wouldn't have a period. Um, You have anything you want to recommend? Channel Zero. Oh, yeah. Um, we can only speak to episode, or season two. Right. Now, I didn't know anything about the show. There's six episodes, self-contained seasons. 
Mm-hmm. And there were things that were taken from um, popular creepypastas. Creepypasta. Which is a strange name. It is a weird term. Internet, uh, internet urban legends, I think, uh, is the sort of most more most concise way to describe what a creepypasta is. I just saw No End House. No End House. Um, and it was really, really very good. It was very disturbing. It's, again, sort of, I'm recommending The Strangest Things. Um, and like The Exorcist, it's, it's, it's horror. Yes. There's no questioning that. There's no way around it. Yes. These um, are shows. These are uh, air on sci-fi or right. sci-fi. Sci-fi. And um, they've come to the end of the series. I believe they're on the sci-fi app. Mm-hmm. I think you can get them on demand if you have that option. Um, and I believe season one is on Amazon Prime. So we have to go back and watch yeah. season one. But I was point. able to get season two and see the entire story arc. And it's a, it's a very modern take on a haunted house story. Um, story. And the, uh, the kind of ghosts and monsters that haunt this house are really terrible. Because they're very... Um, well, I don't want to spoil anything. They're specific to the people. We can say that. And the house, also, there's a, a really elegant element of a production design to it because the house itself looks like an, a really big, very personal art exhibit centered around you when you enter it. Right. And then it becomes something else entirely. Yeah. And, um, and it's a real interesting take on family and family burdens and what they put on you, the burden yeah. of memories. And it's presented in a way that's compelling and scary and the characters good that you music think, too, good soundtrack. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of It Follows right. with the sound design. Well, also uh, the, the, the segments of uh, Christoph Penderecki's music that were used by um, uh, In the Shining. Also, oh, yes. same kind of um, jarring kind of... Uh, What's the term I'm looking for? Dissonance? Yes, maybe. But um, but the, the acting is very good. It's at a really... Yeah, I don't know who the pitch. main uh, girl is. The best friend is in a show on Lifetime, I believe, called The Bold Type, which is a show I enjoy very much. Um, she's the black girl on there. She's Aisha the black D. girl in this. Aisha D. Uh, 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 yeah. And Amy Forsyth. Amy the, Forsyth is the is the main. Yeah, is young the main lady. character. And yeah. it's got everybody's favorite. Hey, I know that guy. He's real good and everything. John Carroll Lynch. Yeah, and he's amazing in this, because he harkens back. And this is. And he and he's a different character. Right. It, like he's almost a whole different character in every episode. He's um, and this is a very high praise. He harkens back to character actors like. Karloff, who are able to take something really monstrous and make it sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a bit of a Frankenstein. Right, he's a scary mon- monster. And he knows that he's a monster, which is... Um, Spoilers. I recently, right. Spoilers. I've, over Halloween, I've, I saw some of uh, Karloff's, his first two Frankenstein films, and there's a great element there of, I know that I, you know, I belong dead. That's actually right. a lot, we belong dead. And so there's sort of a, a, a theme of that in this story, but it was just really well done. It sustained a very difficult mood all the way through the end. It did, and I think that they were smart in their episode-length right. choices, because even in some of the things we've 
uh, seen recently that were eight episodes and done. Right. There were two episodes that kind of dragged. dragged right. And in this case, the six episodes were just really tight. It was. It delivered the story. It got everything across that it needed to. There was no wasted movement to use a judo term. Um, everything. It just it, it delivers a wallop. And what's also interesting is how. The characters that you recognize early on are monsters wind up in some ways being sympathetic. Some yeah. other characters wind up being not sympathetic at all. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of twists and turns, so it was really well done. Good, good, good. Yes. So that's available on Sci-Fi's um, apps mm-hmm. and on demands. Um, and there's a first season to which about which we cannot speak because we know nothing about it. And another season coming up, or already present, apparently, already cast. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, oh, good. Um, I talked about Alias Grace last time, right? Uh-huh. Damn it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this. If you're late and you want to catch up with something, this month, um, Legion is going to come out on... Netflix, Marvel's Legion, although I don't think they're calling it Marvel's Legion. Um, This is an X-Men universe story about, uh, geez, that's a good question. It's about Legion, who I know a lot more about than the show actually shows me. It's, um, what's his name? Dan Stevens mm-hmm. of Downton Abbey and Beauty and the Beast fame. I prefer him in, what was the movie? The Guest? Right. I liked him in that. Um, he's very good. Um, and he plays mm, someone with some mental troubles. And... Then we find out that maybe his mental troubles are actually mutant abilities. Mm. And we go from there. And we get to see Aubrey Plaza act her face off. And she's amazing. She com- it's very difficult because when you're describing it, you're going, okay. You're it's looking- hard to describe. It's hard to describe because when you're trying to explain I was trying to explain the show to somebody. Okay, this is the character who is the... Love Child of Professor X and another cartoon char- uh, comic book character. And because... Which they don't right, talk they, they about yet, and I, they might not ever, because I don't know who this movie is, or who this show is being produced by, which company, and whether or not they even own the rights to be able to say Professor X. Right. Because Sony owns stuff, Fox owns stuff, Marvel owns stuff, and it is unclear. This must be through Fox, because it's on FX. Right. Um, but I don't know that they'll ever be able to just straight up come out and go, but this you, Professor X is When kid. you say that, when you describe it that way to people, it puts a very comic book atmosphere onto it, and that's not at all what it is. It's not. It's this sort of like... a very weird kind of drama. It feels a little bit like Hannibal on acid. Right. It's very stylized. The colors are extremely saturated and bright. Um, you're seeing things a lot the way that the character is presumed to be seeing them. So very unreliable narrator. Super unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Narrator also super unreliable side characters. Mm-hmm. 
Is this a person that is existing in the world? Is this a person that a crazy person is seeing? Is this uh, a person that a, this crazy person is seeing, but also who exists in the world and is manipulating this main character? Like, it's... Um, it's well, very twisty and turny. Jean Smart is in it, right. which is awesome. Uh, I haven't seen her in quite a while. And uh, Jermaine Clement is, uh, plays a part, a small part in it. An uh, important part. All but of the acting is super good. All of it is, but Aubrey Plaza, the reason why you really have to... She is by turns repulsive, sexy, funny, And that's the evil. same 13 second right. clip. Is she his best friend? Is she literally a demon? You know, there's so many different versions of her character. I feel like you're giving away plays. way more than I want to give away. No, I think that... Well, anybody who's familiar with the storyline from... I don't know that anybody uh, would be. I but, wasn't. But it is so. a really, really, really amazing set of performances, all of it. And, and it's, it's done, a short season. I believe it's uh, only eight episodes. Very high style, though. Very high mm-hmm. style. It, 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 it has to be taken on its own terms. Um, it can't be really seen. It's, it reminds me of things like The Prisoner, where the show, if you're looking at it objectively as a show giving information, it, uh, like a regular narrative, it's not going to make any sense to you. And it has to be taken on its own terms. To well, I think that's the same as the show that we're watching. Although David Lynch is doing better in this Twin Peaks right. with giving me a plot than he does in any of his other pieces of work right. that I've seen. And I haven't seen everything, so. So I say watch Legion. It's coming to Netflix. So if Netflix is a concern in your life, check it, check it, check it out, yo. Dan Stevens has beautiful eyes. Uh So watch just for that. That's my hot take on it. Um, Anything else, or is that the end of the show? That's actually the end of the show. Awesome. Okay, so I will say thank you. Thank you for listening. Um... If you like us, tell a friend or a neighbor, a boss, an enemy. Parole officer. Oh, yeah. Parole officers love us. (laughs) Um, You can rate us, uh, review us on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, whatever you get us through. That would be awesome. Um, But, yeah, tell somebody because we want more people to listen so we can make more of these uh, if people care. And if you want to write us a nice letter or a mean letter, but try and stay nice, uh, you can write us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. If you write us a mean letter, we'll have your address, the return address. Uh, well, not if it's an email. I'll know where you live. I don't think that's how email works. Okay. I was trying to be friendly. I don't know that that was friendly. I'll know uh, where you live. <laughs> We're available on Twitter, on Twitter. Tweeter. At Latecomers Pod. Do you have a Twitter? No, I no, should. Twitter. I should actually get, what's the Pinterest, or what's the one where you get to put photographs up to? I should do that. I don't know. It's after Harold Pinter, the playwright. No. Yes, that's true. I don't think that's right. It's at, it's Pinterest has ruined Google image searches for me, so I'm not a big fan of Pinterest. Okay. Anyways, Twitter. At Twitter, we're at Latecomers Pod. At Latecomers Pod. I'm at Amity Armstrong. Um, my other show, podcast presented, uh, 
podcasts collected present difficult to say that's difficult for me to say yes um has a new episode out about fiction versus nonfiction uh podcasts it's a two-parter wherein me and uh elizabeth talk about the spectrum of podcast types and get real granular um granular sure okay that's probably not the word i wanted but that's the word that came out so here we are language is fluid and i think that is everything we appreciate you very much and i don't have a cute thing to say the better life remember that's I'll do that.